Hey everyone, it's Peter Rosenberg from Cheap Heat. Join me and the fearless, physically large stat guy, Greg, and of course, Super Agent 35 under 35, Dipperstein, as we tackle the biggest stories in pro wrestling each and every week. To hear us, follow the Ringer Wrestling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay mage and enjoy yourself. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Pressbox. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Troy Farkas, who's sitting in for Erica. While the NBA Finals have been going on, something very unusual has been happening in the world of sports. The Live Golf Tour, which is funded by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia, started play outside London this week. Kevin Van Valkenburg, who writes fabulously about golf or whatever's on his radar for ESPN, is there. Now, Kevin and I will get into these serious questions about what the Saudi government is doing by recruiting golfers to the tour, in some cases by reportedly offering them more than $100 million. We'll talk about what a renegade golf doer could do to the PGA. But in staging the first live tournament, there was also a lot of comedy. From what Phil Mickelson wore on the course Thursday to the robot, yes, I said robot, that was serving drinks to reporters in the media tent. I told Van Valkenburg that in covering this tournament, he has already tweeted out a couple of Dan Jenkins novels. Let's hear more from our man in the media tent. Here's Kevin Van Valkenburg. All right, Kevin, there are some serious things to talk about, but I want to start with the comedy. Have you ever live tweeted a sporting event where you had to repeatedly assure your audience, no, this is not a joke? Uh, this is a first. Uh, and it, it may be a function of so much of golf Twitter uh, functions on that sort of thin line between comedy and tragedy or stupidity. Uh, and so I think it definitely in this situation, I had to kind of make clear a couple times that, uh, that it, I was not kind of being sarcastic or that some of these things were actually happening. And it, you may be able to hear in the background, there are airplanes flying over as though I'm calling you from like a world war two bunker uh, in, outside <laughs> of England somewhere. Uh, and so that is kind of all part of the spectacle and the show here. There, there may also be a concert that begins later. Uh, so I, I hope that, uh, the press box listeners are ready for anything. <laughs> London calling with KVV, uh, <laughs> our new the podcast. The what was the strange, like 
<laughs> what was the strangest thing you've seen all week? Strangest thing. It was had to be a bunch of professional athletes stuffing themselves into black London cabs that then drove across fairways <laughs> towards tee boxes. And so seeing uh, Phil Mickelson uh, or Graham McDowell or Ian Poulter like sitting knee to knee in a, uh, a London cab that then drove on a golf course uh, is definitely a surreal experience that uh, I never imagined I would see. But And then, of course, there was like a full like uh, British military uh, trumpeted salute on the tees for both days to start us off. So that uh, would also factor in. I saw you at the PGA a few weeks ago. We were denied the first big Phil Mickelson press conference since his comments about the Saudi government back in February. On Wednesday, you got that press conference. What was it like? Uh, very surreal. Very um, kind of awkward and stilted. Uh, it felt a little bit like a therapy session at times. Um, Phil alluded to the fact that he uh, has done, he referred to it, hundreds of hours of therapy. And you can, I think, it's fair to say that when you ask him questions that he is using a therapeutic technique where you are sort of pause for five, 10 seconds to think about what you want to say uh, so that you don't let your emotions run hot. And so Phil did that uh, quite a lot. So it was like almost like being at a dramatic reading of someone's lines or, you know, in a, in a movie or like, all right, Mr. Mickelson, uh, please read the part of disgraced golfer <laughs> dealing with uh, controversy <laughs> and he kind of takes a minute to method act and get into it so that was uh it was very strange did i read that at least two writers were hauled out of these press conferences by the authorities yeah the first day it was sort of strange because they said the press conference was going to go 30 minutes and as it got a little bit tense and heated this was a press conference with kevin na and lee westwood and Ian Poulter. Uh, it, they decided to kind of cut it off at 24 minutes. And one of the reporters was kind of in the midst of asking a question, which they wouldn't take. And as often kind of happens, as you see in the White House scrums, the reporter decided to kind of, uh, I, I think, notably shout out the question to see if he could get a, an answer. And this caused like a huge ruckus and allegations. You're being rude. You're not being polite. And then he sort of went outside uh, and was not allowed back in until they had sort of a long discussion between them. And so there was all this kind of weirdness of the press room of like, uh, wait, did Rob Harris of the Associated Press just get tossed out of the press conference? Is he, is he being ejected from the event? Uh, and then 10 minutes or so later, he was allowed to come back in. And then what yesterday, what happened was kind of, really, this was more egregious, I think, is that Alan Shipnuck, who had written this excellent biography of Phil Mickelson, uh, went to go and join the media scrum and was essentially kind of like blocked by two, uh, you know, undetermined origin uh, security goons and was like, wait, I want to be here. And they were like, no, you're not, you're not allowed in here. Like not, not really being specific that it was like at the wishes of Phil or Greg Norman, but as sort of later revealed on Twitter, Greg Norman was standing behind the scrum, sort of staring with a, a, an evil genius snarl on his face. <laughs> so uh, Alan, to his credit, handled it uh, like a pro and didn't sort of try to, you know, I think I would have been a lot more hot. I would have been, you know, shouting back and forth and he de-escalated the situation. So it was sort of a good lesson that, uh, you know, you it's always best to kind of keep your cool in those situations. But I didn't really realize it was going on and because I was trying to ask Phil Mickelson about 
I don't know, human rights or some sort of larger uh, thing that's not about golf. And he was quickly pivoting to, well, I had a tough day putting on the front nine, and uh, but the putter came back in the, in the back. So <laughs> it, was, it was definitely like a very surreal uh, couple days. But you also can't help but feel like, am I standing at the sort of precipice of a huge like fracture in the history of golf as a professional sport? And will, you know, there's only, I think, four American media people here. And so you can't help but feel like, all right, like I'm here to sort of document a little bit of history. You mentioned the words White House. Who was presiding over these press conferences with the golfers? Uh, that is one Ari Fleischer, uh, who we were sort of given no like hint or indication that this would happen, but in walked Ari Fleischer. And this is kind of where the bit of like, this is not a joke began because as a couple of my followers said, like, this seems like some sort of Mad Libs type thing that like Ari Fleischer, who, you know, tweets out the memorable TikTok each year of what happened on 9-11 and the dramatic sort of things would end up working for the essentially the Saudi government to, uh, you know, sports wash its golf league and approve its larger reputation. And I, I will say, Brian, like, it's really fun to be around the English press who kind of doesn't really um, care about the sort of pleasantries of, you know, um, insulting the, the subjects in some ways. And so they were quickly like, you know, how, how do you square this? And they had done their research because I wasn't aware of this tweet. But Ari Fleischer had sort of said at one point, you know, President Obama is spending billions like a Saudi dictator who doesn't want to be overthrown. And so the reporter was like, how, you know, how do you square that attitude with your current sort of em employer? And he oh, huff and puffed. You can talk to me about it, that offline. And, you know, I, I, I that was a long, long time ago in the, in the world of global affairs, you know, and I, I did not, to my knowledge, he didn't meet with reporters afterwards to discuss anything online in a, in a breakout session. But, mm. you know, Ari Fleischer has shown, I think that if you are offering a check that he will consider, uh, taking it uh, to do his whatever particular set of skills. So, um, you know, I guess uh, kudos, kudos to Ari for getting that bag. So the golfers who showed up are asked over and over again, why are you here? Do you understand the ramifications of you being here? What do you think was actually revealed in their answers? Uh, I would say that what was revealed was that they had had uh, some media training. Uh, certainly they wanted to, spin this the best that they could. And I know for a fact that Liv sat with them and tried to media train them all and gave them a, a sort of long list of talking points and things that they could say, but nothing can really, um, you know, make you believe as a media person who's been doing this for a long time, that what someone is saying up there is genuine when it is clearly not. Uh, I don't think anyone, you know, it was almost kind of comical at one point when Taylor Gooch and, Kevin Na were talking about well, one of the biggest reasons they were here is because of the shotgun start format and that you would never get a bad draw again, that, you know, it was very unfair sometimes when you'd catch a bad side of the draw, like at the PGA championship, and this would finally equal those things out. <laughs> that was worth throwing the golf world into chaos. Uh, mm -hmm. Look, would it be better in some ways if they just said it's a lot of money and, you know, everybody's got to make choices and I made this one. I don't know. I mean, I think that would maybe open them up to a little bit of attack uh, initially, but would it also be seen in some ways as refreshing? It would be like, yeah, we all know what this is about, so why not just admit it? And I, But I think that part of getting 
the the guarantees of this stuff is sort of saying no no like this is the we're doing this for larger purposes and that's you know anyone who believes that this is really about like the kingdom of saudi arabia's interest in growing the game of golf is really kidding themselves i mean come on like it's not that at all and then we can have a debate and discussion about what are the overall value of saudi arabia you know seeking to improve its global image and maybe doing some larger good but we also have to kind of talk about the the dark stuff too and so i'm just of the opinion here that like the golf is the least important part it's the sort of you know what this kind of represents because it's really in a lot of ways like a clash of the east and the west and the sort of understanding of what we want the the future of the middle east to be and so this is it's a tough week for the stick to sports crowd because it's literally impossible to do that here. So for people just tuning in, you, you referenced this a second ago, but the Saudi government wants to do what with this golf tour? There is a large, uh, there's a huge amount of money that Saudi Arabia has set aside $600 billion and more, uh, in what they call the public investment fund, where they are investing around the world uh, in different areas in the sort of hopes to diversify the uh, Saudi Arabian economy, because I, I think wisely they've realized that like petroleum is not going to be around forever. And so they know that a country that doesn't sort of grow and change and diversify isn't going to be any kind of global power that they are now forever. And so over the last you know, 10 years or so, or, or really a few years, but the plan is, is called Vision 2030. It's to invest in a lot of different ways and also invite investment into the kingdom. They're building a city kind of out of the blue, out of nowhere, uh, that where it's only a desert existed, that is essentially going to have like a 125 mile, like Las Vegas style strip where a train can get from it in there and back in like half an hour. And all of that is going to require like an enormous amount of business investment from other countries. It's even, you know, so much that Saudi Arabia can't just build it on its own. And also they want like culture and they want sort of, you know, things that are American and European and African and Asian to sort of be a part of their country. And so in doing that over the last few years, what they've done is have huge investments in horse racing. Everybody kind of probably knows that like, if you want to be somebody in horse racing, you have to sort of, you know, take money from people who are most interested in horse racing, which is people from the kingdom. And they've bought a controlling interest in Newcastle United, the Premier League soccer team, which was very controversial when that happened. And there was a lot of pushback about whether the Premier League should allow that. And they've made huge investments in WWE. Uh, you know, they brought over an event there and, Golf is kind of next in line. Formula One is a huge, you know, it's, Formula One's popularity is exploding and they realized that and sort of got involved in that too. So all of that is meant not just like no one is thinking this golf venture is going to be like profitable on its own, if ever, but not for like a long time, if, if ever. So what they're doing is sinking 500 million to, you know, they, I think Greg Norman has said they're, they're, outlay is essentially they're willing to put $2 billion into it over the next four or five years and hope that that can sort of burnish, help burnish their reputation worldwide. And when you think about how many wealthy businessmen and world leaders play and love the game of golf, it might be a really smart strategic bet for them. Uh, and so if you can have Phil Mickelson play with the prime minister of Japan, 
because you're, you know, if you've paid Phil Mickelson $200 million, doesn't that help you like drive investment to your country? You bet it does. And so they're essentially being, you know, bought up in the way that Fox Sports probably bought up Tom Brady, which was not to sort of be a commentator on air about football as much as it was to sort of, you know, schmooze with big time wealthy people. And the reputation burnishing part of this, this is not a secret. This is something that has been more or less explicitly stated. Yes. I mean, this is, you know, they, anyone of the listeners here can Google Vision 2030 and see that they've put this all essentially on the website. Now, they're not saying, like, hey, we're doing this to burnish our reputation, but they're saying, like, we want you to invest in Saudi Arabia because we're modernizing our country. We're moving into the next millennium. We're, you know, we want to diversify our economy. All of that is spelled out right there. So, like, I've, there's been a lot of, you can't, it's been tough to tell on like Twitter this week about what are like genuine engagement and what is like this army of bots that is sort of fighting back against you, uh, making legitimate points, but it's all kind of spelled out on the website. It's not some nefarious plot. It's something that they're kind of really upfront about. Hey, we want to do this. And I think what's interesting and what's, what's a really nuanced conversation, Brian is like, we, we ought to be able to talk about whether like the horrible things out there, yes, we have to acknowledge those, but also like, is this like in net large a good thing? They would argue it's a good thing for the future of the country. And I think it's a journalist's job to sort of show like, okay, if you are arguing that, you have to kind of ask the people who are involved in sort of sports watching it, well, are you aware of the sort of awful things? And what I think is most interesting to think going forward is what's gonna happen for Phil Mickelson or Dustin Johnson if another Jamal Khashoggi situation emerges, you know, if you're playing the event in Bedminster or Portland, Oregon, and something else awful happens, you're going to have people asking you about it. Are they prepared for like, it's not all in the past. The past is not the past. It's still present. So here's a question I guarantee you've heard in your mentions and I've heard on sports radio a few hundred times. Why are we holding the golfers responsible when the U.S. government and U.S. corporations do business with Saudi Arabia all the time. What do you say to that? Well, I'm doing it because I cover golf. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I can't. Someone was Good like, point. when are you going to ask President Biden about Yemen? I was like, I don't know. I've, I haven't been in a, a press conference with President Biden in my life or any president. So like, I can only control the part of my job that is my job. I hope that journalists around the world are asking those questions and the sort of, you know, whether we should, you know, be asking human rights questions around the world for any sports league, I think is an important part. Uh, but I'm doing it because my job for a few years in some tangential way has been to write about golf. And so that's what I'm doing here instead of just kind of, you know, this is a, this is a golf issue. It's also a global issue. And this is why sports journalists need to be more well-versed in things than just, how far does a seven iron go or what grind is in your wedge here? Were you able to watch any of the TV broadcast in the media center there? I was. And uh, it is a little disconcerting to hear Arlo White's uh, voice on there. If you're a Premier League fan or if you're a Ted Lasso fan, uh, he's the main broadcast. I, I've someone told me today, I don't think Arlo White has ever played golf in his life. Like he's not a golfer. So uh, it's a little strange to have. Him doing that, Jerry Fultz, I think, is a very good uh, announcer. He kind of lends a, a professionalism to the broadcast. He used to be a work at Golf Channel. And, um, you know, here's what's kind of more part of the nuance thing, too, right, is that a lot of the broadcast stuff 
you could argue that it is kind of innovative. Like if I'm going to watch a PGA tour tournament, do I have to outlay like nine hours of my day on it? And do I have to shift from golf channel to a streaming app to CBS to back to a streaming app here? This is like, it's four and a half hours and it's all on one thing. And there's no commercials as a fan. Like you could argue, Hey, like I wouldn't mind something like this to sort of see, you know, I get to tune in. I know when Justin Thomas is going to be on. I don't have to constantly look for what side of the draw he's going to be on. Like there are some innovative things. There's been some clumsy things too. I mean, there's a lot of names misspelled in some of the releases and, you know, people who you've never heard of, uh, in, and this, this team element to it is, is a little bit weird. And anyone trying to pretend like they're following it or that they're like a big fan of the crushers or the, the stingers, <laughs> the stingers or the fireballs or something is kind of kidding themselves. But, you know, some of it actually might be good for the golf world to kind of think about. Like if I was a WGC, which is tangentially part of the PGA tour, but a sort of a world event that just takes the top 50 players. I would think seriously about doing a shotgun start for two days at least, because man, you, you get that four hour window and you could say to TV broadcasts, like let's, let's just, you don't have to do this. You don't have to broadcast this for seven hours. Like let's just all get all the 50 players out there on the course at the same time and go. And I, I think there's some benefits to that. Part of the presentation just seemed to be, let's do the exact opposite of whatever CBS and Jim Nance would do. We're going to do Formula One style leaderboard on the left hand side. We're going to use the word chaos, which is not something I hear typically during a golf broadcast. We're going to have shots, shots, shots. We're going to, you know, no beauty shots here, no bird song. It's going to be golf, golf, golf. What'd you make of that? I think that if you talk to golf fans uh, or you dive into golf Twitter, which I don't know that I'd recommend, but um, it, the, one of the biggest complaints is the commercial load. Like it's so hard to want to watch uh, golf, even if you really love golf because of how many commercials there are. And yeah, commercials foot the bill. And so I understand why broadcast networks have to do it, my own included. But, you know, it's it sometimes feels as a golf person that the golf is totally secondary to what you're being sold, that the golf only exists uh, as, you know, a way to prop up the commercials, not the other way around. And that's hard you know especially if you're if you watch soccer if you watch formula one and the commercials are just or the ads are just kind of in the background at all times and the action is constant i can totally get why something like this would be appealing they did have some personality profiles called how they live where they would go to the golfer's home and it turns out how golfers live is they play tons of golf and they want to win golf tournaments uh, Ian Poulter made a cup of tea for the cameras. That was about as, as drove his, fascinating. Drove his race car with his son. I mean, it's just <laughs> some guys are riding their tractor for maybe, you know, that 20 minutes when the camera's around. It's, it's, it is riveting. No, I mean, it, it is funny to sort of see, you know, you're used to like constant commercials for insurance companies and then to sort of have what's our, as you and I know, as ex kind of newspaper people, in-house ads, <laughs> just kind of always <laughs> running uh, on the live broadcast. It's kind of funny. Uh, I, I don't know quite what to make of it or if, whether that will be forever. I think one of the future things to sort of see is like, will this ever be on TV? Or will there be commercials in the future? Will there be you know sponsors that will want to be a part of this? And uh, all of that will kind of probably help determine whether this is a four-year venture or a 10 or 20-year venture. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yesterday, the PGA Tour suspended 17 golfers who were competing in this tournament, including Mickelson and Dustin Johnson. Suspension effectively means what? Uh, it means they cannot play uh, in any PGA Tour event. He, uh, they're not allowed to take a sponsor's invite into a PGA Tour event, even if they're not a member. They're not allowed to accumulate any points in the FedEx Cup race. Uh, they're not allowed to play on the President's Cup team, uh, which is the sort of rider the PJ Tours version of the Ryder Cup. So some guys have basically said, I don't have any interest in fighting this. I don't care. I'm here and I'm happy to do that. Mickelson has not purpose, I think has very purposely not resigned this. I if I had to guess, Brian, I think that there's a part of Phil that loves the idea of a Mickelson versus the PGA Tour LLC going all the way up through the court system and the, into the Supreme Court, that he might want to sort of be the the person who pushes back against this legally. And because, you know, he's a lifetime member. Phil could play one tournament a year. He could play just the Arnold Palmer if he wanted to, or just the Memorial, uh, just, you know, the Tigers tournament uh, the, in Riviera. So I think he would, he's, he, his point was, I've worked really hard for that. You get lifetime status when you win 20 times, which means you can you never lose your card. Anytime you ever want to play in a tournament, you can get it. And so he wants to kind of see if he can push that. So a lot of the other guys are just like, eh, whatever. It's not worth it to me. Sergio Westwood, all these guys are like, I'd rather just move on. And, you know, this is just the beginning of that sort of how that's going to play out. Hardly the end, because there are going to be guys who are legally going to challenge it. And I, I think it would be really interesting to see what, you know, courts these cases end up in, who those uh, appointees were, who are going to hear these cases, because mm. as we've seen, that can affect dramatically how law gets interpreted. Uh, and <laughs> a certain you know, golf-loving president appoint these judges. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As you know, it's people are like, how could you like, sort of, you know, throw those conspiracy theories out there? I don't think that's a conspiracy theory at all. I think that's American life, and I think that there's to sort of pretend like that's not part of all this is is totally naive. We're going to have an event later this year on the Live Golf Tour that is at Trump Bedminster. He is going to be there as part of this. And, you know, he has shown his interest in golf is not going away anytime soon. He's furious with the PGA Tour for taking away his event at Doral and moving it to Mexico years ago. So all of that is a sort of backdrop in this drama. You call Live on ESPN a serious threat to the PGA Tour. How serious do you think it is? Well, if you think about if every week the best 50 players uh, in the world were not playing on the PGA tour. And every week was essentially the Sanderson farms or the three M or the John Deere. <laughs> How valuable would that product be as a television product? It would probably be pretty difficult, right? Like if you want, you know, some of the most watched tournaments of the year are the ones where all the good players are there. The Genesis, you know, that's uh, held at, at uh, Riviera country club in LA 
And that's because all the players, all the best players are there. The Memorial, almost all the players are there. If you turn the Memorial and the Genesis into, you know, what are the minor league tournaments now? I don't know how the product survives in a lot of ways, right? Because if, it, if things that are getting a 2.1 rating now are getting a 0.8 rating, man, what commercial sort of venture, you know, what companies want to broadcast on that? And so I think the PGA Tour is facing an enormous existential threat right now. And I don't know, I wouldn't, I don't know how I would advise Jay Monahan to sort of fix it. His letter sort of essentially saying, well, everyone who left was just, you know, did it for money, money, money. We're more than that. There's, you know, I don't know that that's the right argument to make because if I'm Justin Thomas or Rory McIlroy, I, I would love, I, Rory McIlroy is one of my favorite athletes and he has been outspoken about this, you know, saying morality matters more than money. How much more, uh, can this possibly, how much more money can you possibly need? I don't know that that argument is going to play with people who are not Rory McIlroy, uh, because eventually $200 million sounds like a lot. Tiger only made $121 million in his entire PGA career. Dustin, Justin, uh, excuse me, Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson just got way more than that in one day. Mm-hmm. So or, it's- I, fact, more factually would say by agreeing to play the entire, you know, couple years. That's why they got so much money. Sure. I mean, you say the top 50, but there's a, what's interesting, right? Is what amount, what, what percentage of the top 50 would have to defect before somebody flips on even a big tournament and says, I don't feel like the best players in the world are here or most of the best players in the world. Yeah. Golf has, has always been in sort of a weird spot, right? Because the main thing that we have every week in our lives has always been the PGA tour. But the PGA Tour doesn't control any of the majors, which are the only thing that really matter historically and the only reason why we really watch. Like nobody cares that much about how many regular season tournaments you won. I bet most people couldn't tell you how many regular season tournaments Jack Nicholas won, but they could tell you in a second that he won 18 majors. And so if the majors sort of continue with their belief of like, yeah, you know, this is a you problem, not a us problem we don't need to worry anything about this then i'm not sure like what the future is of the tour like how do they sort of make themselves more attractive and i i tweeted a long thread about this but you know the pga tour when it was established was a for-profit entity and dean beeman who was the second commissioner came along and sort of transitioned it into a non-profit and he did that because he realized as because of his background was in insurance, because back then professional golfers didn't just have golf jobs. They had to have other jobs too, that the tour could pay a lot less taxes uh, if they were a 501c6. Okay. So that was a genius move for 40 years of the tour's history because their tax burden was way reduced. Anyone who sponsored a tournament like farmers or Genesis or whoever could take a huge write-off by saying, you know, I'm going to put $20 million up to sponsor this tournament and I'm decreasing my tax burden by $20 million. Well, there are laws that sort of say what a nonprofit can and can't do with its money. So the PGA Tour found themselves a little bit hamstrung when it came to just handing over money for the top players as based off of like what are essentially like appearance fees. Liv was sitting here saying, hey, we'll give you $10 million to show up. And the PGA Tour was saying, we'll give you a million based on a player impact program that's partially determined by how many Google hits you get. Cause that was how they had to sort of legally frame it. And then Liv was saying, you know what? 
we'll do 50 million in the PGA Tour. Just how do you respond to an organization that has so much money that legitimately losing $2 billion or never turning a profit on that is a blink in the eye to them, is, is almost a rounding error. Uh, and that's why this is such a huge kind of potential fracturing for the future of professional golf in America, at least. I think I have a sense of how hard it would be to replace Steph Curry if you just removed him from an NBA game and from as a TV attraction. But how replaceable is Bryson DeChambeau or Dustin Johnson if you just pulled them out of a golf broadcast? I think that the, the harder thing to think about in a lot of ways is there is some like dead wood on the PGA Tour of like, and as some of the guys who are here were, you know, Martin Keimer, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, Graham McDowell. These are not guys who are particularly competitive on the PGA tour anymore. And, but their names, because they sort of once were so part, there's a draw to them. Bryson's a different deal because he's a draw, but also he's legitimately one of the 10 best players in the world. And Dustin Johnson would be sort of in that similar category, although he's 10 years older than Bryson. So there are legitimately like really great players who are kind of stuck in the corn Ferry tour and stuck in the minor leagues who can't get status because it's hard to lose your PGA tour card once you get it. And there are so many guys who manage to kind of scrape together just enough points or use enough sort of exemptions to stay in the 125 people who get to keep their cards every year. So if this were like the NFL and this sort of aging veterans were like, I'm going to go somewhere else. The NFL would be like, <laughs> great. Like, you know, we'd love to get rid of you because we got, an enormous amount of hungry kids who are coming up who the product is the sport, not that sort of name of the, on the Jersey or whatever. Well, in golf, the product has always been essentially the stars. You know, they're not teams you're rooting for. You're rooting for people. You're a Tiger Woods fan. You're a Phil Mickelson fan. You're a Roy McIlroy fan. So while there are young, super talented golfers who could slot in and replace a Bryson DeChambeau or replace a Dustin Johnson, I don't know that the marketing has been set up over time to have that kind of pay off for a while. You need to sort of completely rethink of like, all right, you should totally be really into this young player, Victor Hovland, or, I mean, that's not even a great example. Like someone who, the, the, what's interesting is like the two of the kids who are here, one of them just won the U.S. Amateur. One was the NCAA champion and they couldn't really get status on tour because it's hard, it's hard to sort of, there's so many good golfers who are scraping for those spots that they're like, you know what, I'm going to take three, $4 million and I'm going to go figure it out over there. And, and I'm going to play my way into the majors that way. So the, the more complicated answer is like talent wise. Yeah. There's enough golfers to fill those spots for sure. But can you convince a, the public, which has only really for the past 20 years cared about Tiger Woods and very little else that they should really invest in the next sort of up and coming kid who, you know, like a, a Will Zalatoris who, mm -hmm. you know, had to scrape his way on a tour and is probably a star, but I would say outside of golf fans, 0.2% of people know who Will Zalatoris is. Two last ones before we let you go. Can you adjudicate the Phil Mickelson sweater controversy from day one of this tournament? I wish I could. So if, if anybody who's following me on Twitter, I know this is about Phil wore an Augusta national uh, golf club pullover on the very first day. Like he walked to the first tee uh, with it on. And I was standing right next to him and he walked by me and I was like, Oh my God, 
Like Phil doesn't do anything accidentally unless he was like looking through his closet and didn't have a, a pullover that didn't have any Callaway logos on it or KPMG logos on it or whatever and had to go with this Augusta National one. But it's either like he was sending a message to someone like, hey, I want to be doing this or he did it. And then someone said to him, hey, you better take that off right now because Augusta didn't want any part of that because it disappeared quickly into the round. <laughs> and I really wanted to ask him about this because this is a nerdy insider golf thing. It's the kind of, this is not a master's polo, right? This is an Augusta National Golf Club polo, which you can only buy if you are like allowed to visit the course outside the masters, like you have to, you know, like Phil, he can go as a PJ tour player before could go and play there at any time. And then when he won the uh, three masters, certainly he's invited back anytime he wants to in the off season. So you have to like physically go in the pro shop and hand over your credit card to get one of these things. They're pretty rare to be able to get, you can't buy one, even if you want it. So I just was like fascinated by this. I thought, what is he doing? Every move that Phil does is kind of calculated. I, you know, it was one of those things in a press conference where he's being asked, people are shouting questions. And so the la- I was really wondering, Phil, are you, why are you wearing this Gus thing? I, I couldn't get it out without someone shouting over me and I had to kind of defer. So I don't know like <laughs> when we'll ever solve this mystery. Well, I do know for a fact that he had a different vest on midway through the round and the Augusta one did not uh, reappear. I love how you said on Twitter, it looked like someone had magic markered over the logo too. It, that's what it looked like to me. And I was really, I was trying to be sort of careful with that language because it could have just been, you know, gray thread instead of white or it could have been dirty, who knows, but it, it looked like he was sort of, I know for a fact that Phil at one point played a, a tailor-made club during his career. And this isn't like a breaking news thing, but he, he had his caddy go and like color it in with a Sharpie so that it was like trying to hide, you know, it, it was in his contract. It was okay to play, but he didn't want anyone to know that he was not playing a Callaway club. So with that in mind, I was like, wait, did he use a marker or a piece of like spray paint to like cover this logo up because he didn't, didn't have any other pullovers. And like, I, Anyway, it, it was just a weird, weird moment on a weird day. <laughs> I thought it was like the dream team, you know, where they were wearing the flags over the Reebok yeah. logos. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Phil's own version. Uh, finally, you revealed to the world the presence of the drink-serving press room robot. Uh, yes. What can you tell us about the robot? Uh, the drink-serving press robot is is very real. Uh, I was... I was weighing in my mind. I knew this would be the kind of thing that Twitter would delight in, but I was like, Kevin, is this sports washing to show a picture of the live robot that is taking crisps and Pepsi around? And I ultimately decided, no, like the robot is its own comedic uh, content. And so share a picture of the robot, the robot it's self-driving. It's, I don't know how it's uh, determines. It's like a Roomba, I guess. Uh, I stood my ground when the robot, uh, came up to me the other day just to sort of see if the robot would either run me over or would I would have to break out my uh, ill-fated college football days and throw a shoulder into the robot. And I didn't need to because the robot paused and uh, artfully pivoted around me. So <laughs> it's about R2D2 sized from your video yes, there. Is. Yes, it is. Wow. Uh, it's it's just constantly in motion. So and you and uh, you didn't partake. That's where you drew the line as a. I feel that would writer. be an ethical violation to, t- <laughs> to take a Pepsi from the. I, I reached and I was like, "Wait, I need to hold my ground." Uh, All on right. this. So, Kevin Van Valkenburg, get yourself over to a pub where you can partake without any ethical complications. Thank you for coming on the press box. Always, Brian. Thank you. Huge thanks again to Kevin Van Valkenburg. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic from Troy Farkas, who is sitting in for Erica. 
David Shoemaker and I are going to be back on Monday. We got to talk about this Washington Post thing, which has been so big in the news over the last couple of days, plus more lukewarm takes about the media. Have a great weekend.